context of this is Barnabas and Saul going out on their missionary journey. They've just been sent off by the church of Antioch, and now they're going forth preaching the word of the Lord. Word of God says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as the word of God is preached this morning, that it would be preached with boldness and with power and would go forth with might. And Father, just as the powers and principalities of darkness sought to keep this pro-counsel and this story from believing and understanding the word of the Lord when it was preached, I have no reason to believe that the same thing is not going on right now. And that there are likely powers and principalities, unseen forces, enemies this morning that are seeking to obscure the word of God as it is going forth, seeking to confuse people, seeking to turn people away from the faith. And God, I pray that you would do to these powers and principalities the exact same thing that you did in Acts chapter 13, that you would thwart them, that you would stop them, that you would defeat and overthrow them, so that the word of God may go forth clearly, so that people may hear and believe and give glory to God, which is our due to you, and you deserve it. And may it be so this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Deemer. Have y'all had a good weekend so far? Yeah? I have. I mean, go hogs, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, enjoy, I was actually at the game yesterday and en- enjoyed it, but I didn't get to see the end of it. It's a whole other story. I'll let Francis tell you that story some other time. But, uh, but no, it's been a good weekend, and I'm glad that we're here to worship the Lord together. And um, as we think about this passage that we're reading today, and we continue to look at this this Gentile um, expansion of the gospel into the Gentile lands and this first missionary endeavor of the church, I think about what my heart is, what my desire is for this church. We talked about how last week was kind of a pattern. I, I, I talked about how it was a pattern for being a church that's on mission, for God, a church that's sending out missionaries. And my heart's desire is for Harbin's to be a missionary church. A church that sends people out into the fields. Some of those fields are local, close by, very close by. 
fields that are right beside our homes, fields that are at our children's swim meets or soccer games or social activities, fields that have cubicles and water coolers and boardrooms, fields that we visit frequently to get our favorite cup of coffee or groceries or fill our stomachs. But my heart is also desirous to see Harbin's be a missionary church that sends people out into fields that are not local, that are not close by, fields that may require learning of another language, fields that may require the selling of homes or possessions or resources, fields that may involve malaria shots, culture shock, and jet lag, fields that are dominated by strange customs and different lifestyles and different value systems, fields that challenge our way of life, fields that need preachers and teachers as well as doctors and nurses, needs evangelists to spread the good news and engineers to help dig wells for water. My heart's desire is for Harbin's to be a missionary church that gives of itself and sacrifices, sacrifices our resources to get others into the fields, giving of our homes so they might be hospitals of gospel hospitality, giving of our time. I want Harbin's to be a church where some are called to go down into the deep, dark well of far-off mission fields, but others are called to hold the rope. Either way, those who go and those who stay have rope-burnt hands from the sacrifice that a church that's really on mission is willing to make because the gospel is so important and it needs to reach all people. My heart's desire is basically for, Har- for Harbin's to be like the church in Antioch that we read about here. A little bit of recap, just as a reminder. We are going through the book of Acts. We just picked up our series again last week. We started back up in Acts chapter 13, which is the beginning of the second half of the book. The theme of the book of Acts is simply Acts 1-8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen how the gospel has exploded in Jerusalem, and thousands were coming to the faith. And then persecution broke out, which was used by God to actually spread the gospel outside of Jerusalem into areas like Samaria. And then Samaria receives the gospel, and we see immediately after that that the Gentiles begin to receive the gospel as well. The Ethiopian eunuch was the first Gentile to hear the gospel message from Philip. And then later we have uh, Cornelius, the centurion, and his whole household coming to faith. And then we have Antioch. We see that believers in Antioch took the gospel to the Gentiles and a church was formed. And a year later, after the forming of that church, it's a one-year-old church plant, they become the fire for gospel missions around the world. And so we see a major shift happening now in the book of Acts. A shift from a Jewish-dominated, Jewish-majority church to a Gentile-dominated, Gentile-majority church. Uh, A shift from Peter, who was primarily the apostle to the Jews, to Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles. And as I mentioned, a shift from Jerusalem to Antioch as the center place for the spreading of the gospel and the continued outward focus of the gospel message, which is what? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we're still in that last part, the ends of the earth. It's still spreading to this day. So we looked last week at this church in Antioch. They were an outwardly driven church. And they were outwardly driven because they were inwardly strong. 
They were strong because they took teaching seriously. Um, they took leadership seriously. This church had five teachers, leaders in the church, so they took teaching seriously, which meant they took leadership seriously. And they took the spiritual disciplines seriously. We read about them fasting and praying before they send out missionaries. And then after God had told them to send out missionaries, we see them continuing to fast and to pray. This made them a church that was sensitive to the Spirit's leading, and thus they became a tool in God's hand to change the world. So in Acts 13, 3, we read this, what we studied last week. It says, after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, I didn't mention this last week, but that phrase, sent them off, it literally means they released them or they let go. Uh, it would be akin to us today saying that some, we cut the cord, that, that we let them go, set them free to do what God had called them to do. So they've sacrificially let go of two of their best teachers, Barnabas, who had to be the most encouraging guy in the entire church, and Saul, who would later in this passage today become Paul, certainly the most gifted theologian in the history of the church, who's wrote more more of the New Testament than anyone else, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. So they send these two out, they cut the cord, and that's where we pick up the story today, after they've been sent out by the Holy Spirit to change the world. And I want to point out something, because the very first verse of the passage we're studying today, verse 4, which we mentioned that verse last week, but we're going to study it some more this week, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So being sent out. Now, we read in verse 3 that the church sent them off. And we read in this verse that the Holy Spirit sent them out. Now, the main point, I think, what we wanted to get from that is that it wasn't the church's... The church was just the agent of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the sending body. The Holy Spirit was the one who sent them out. But one very interesting thing is the different word that Luke chooses to use here. You see... In verse 3, Luke chooses to use this word that I just mentioned about letting go, releasing, cutting loose. The, ver the word here in Acts chapter 13, verse 4, literally means to shoot out, to propel, to send them out. So the church has to let go, cut the cord, and then the Holy Spirit, boom, sends them out. So I, I was thinking about that sending out, shooting out this morning as I was trying to come up, because I didn't have any really good illustration for the kids this morning, and I, and I got to thinking about a pattern, and how last week we talked about how the, the, what the church was doing there, the, how strong they were inwardly, and we looked at the teaching and the leadership and all of that. That was the pattern for us to follow if we want to be a, a strong, outward-focused missionary church. But how about the actual missionary endeavor? Is there a pattern for that? And there is. That's what we're going to talk about today, this pattern for successful missionary endeavors, what, what's happening here in this passage today. And I got to thinking about when I was about, probably in sixth grade, I really got into with my buddies making paper airplanes and flying them. And we would just make them all the time, and we were flying all the time. And I happened to live in Ecuador, in Quito. I lived in a, in a uh, it was a 12-story tall, actually 13-story tall building. We lived on the seventh story. So we decided to practice our airplane-making skills out the window of my bedroom. Now, I know now that that was littering, okay? So please forgive me, but I have to continue the story. So me and my best bud, Tim, 
we would, every morning or every afternoon we got back from school, we'd go and we'd make paper airplanes, and we'd have a contest to see how far ours would go out the window. And we'd try different designs, different models, and we'd propel them, shoot them out the window. <laughs> Some of them would, you know, just go straight down onto somebody's deck that was down there. Other ones would go out over to the playground that was out there. And then there was a wall behind the playground that went into some other big park. And, uh, and sometimes they'd clear that wall. And I remember one day, I, got, I had an airplane. And uh, I believe this was the, the award-winning design right here, this one. Uh, this would be my friend Tim's design, which goes... Phew. So this was the award-winning design because I shot an airplane out that morning, that afternoon. I took that airplane, I threw it out, and... It flew, it went past the balconies, yay. <coughs> it went past the playground, yay. Crossed over the wall. And I guess it caught some sort of air current at that point because it just started going up and off and off and off. And we actually eventually lost visual sight of it because it went so far. And I turned around and I was pumping my fist in the air. I said, you'll never beat that. And so, you know, when I think about doing missions work locally or globally, I want us to follow the unbeatable, unstoppable pattern of the Scripture. This is unstoppable mission work. We're going to see it here. You can't stop what Barnabas and Saul are doing in this passage. It's going to succeed. God's making it happen. It's unstoppable. So it's kind of like, like this one. This is the only time you can throw airplanes in the church, kids. All right? When I'm doing it. All right. Okay? And I want us to be unstoppable. You can have it after the service. All right? <coughs> I don't want this one to hurt anybody. All right, and I don't want it to nosedive like that one, okay? So this morning, we do have a pattern to follow as we look at this passage of Scripture here. And Carrie, you can, you can pick that up. I know you really want it, all right? So let's look at what happens here as they send out these missionaries, as the Holy Spirit propels them out. <coughs> and the first thing I want us to see, <coughs> the title of today's message is Unstoppable Missionary Endeavors. First thing I want us to see is that missionary endeavors that our spirit-led will be word-centered. We already know this is spirit-led because we just read that the Holy Spirit is the sending agency. The Holy Spirit's the one that, boom, propels them out. It's a spirit-led endeavor. But missionary endeavors that are spirit-led will have to be, they have to be word-centered. I heard a story recently, actually heard it from another pastor, so I don't know if this was a news story or what, but he was, he, I guess he had heard a news story of a, a, a lady who went out one morning and tried to start her vehicle, and she got in the car, tried to start the vehicle, and it, nothing would happen. It wouldn't, wouldn't turn over. And so she figured, well, it's out of gas, so she went into her garage and got a, her little tank of gas and was hoping just to get enough in it that she could get to a gas station, pours that into her gas tank, Gets back in the car, tries to turn it on, nothing happens. She's, she's uh, just totally unable to get the car to do anything. And so she calls a mechanic, and a mechanic comes out, and they open the hood of her car, and the engine is gone. It's missing. Apparently, in the middle of the night, a, a thief had actually stolen the engine out of her car. So no matter how much gas she put in, she wasn't going anywhere. And what I want us to see this morning is that the Spirit is like the gas. It's the power for our mission's work. And the Word is the engine. Okay? And they go hand in hand. When the Holy Spirit sends missionaries into the world, He sends them with a gospel message. We're going to talk a bit here in a second. There, there are, there's a place and a time for other types of missionary endeavors that, 
that are like humanitarian type efforts. But all of our missionary work, even our humanitarian efforts, have to be word-centered. The word of God is what people need. And the reason Paul or Saul and Barnabas are successful in this missionary endeavor is because they, it is a word-centered endeavor. It says they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned earlier, they were sent out not by men. They were sent out not by themselves. They weren't even sent out by the church, although the church is the agency that the Spirit used to send them out. They were sent out by the Spirit. In order to be sent out and to be on mission with the Holy Spirit, you've got to be sensitive to the Spirit. That's why the spiritual disciplines are so important. If you feel God calling you to a mission, maybe a local missionary effort, or a global missionary effort, by all means, please, take the time to fast and to pray over that missionary effort. The spiritual disciplines are what help us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's guidance. Now, this doesn't mean they didn't make plans or strategize. I mean, it says they head out to to Cyprus. (coughs) That was probably a strategy because Barnabas was from Cyprus. If you remember earlier when we studied Barnabas, he's from Cyprus. Matter of fact, if you remember earlier from Acts chapter 11, several of the members of the church in Antioch were from Cyprus. So it was probably a very good strategic move to go to Cyprus first where they possibly knew people and they had places to stay. It made sense to go to Cyprus first. So I don't want to say that we don't strategize, we don't make plans, we don't have things thought out. You still do that, but you have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit because He may strike down your plans. He may say, no, that's not what I want you to do. Great strategy, I got a different plan. And that's that tension we talked about a few weeks back that you see in in Proverbs chapter 16. Let me read a couple of verses for you from there again. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 13 says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. That is wise advice. Commit your work. The things you've come up with, your plans, your strategies, commit them to the Lord. Okay, and God will establish your plans. But then six verses later, we have this. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And I think the biblical principle here is that God calls for both diligence from his believers, from his children, and he also calls for them to be discerning. Diligence and discernment is needed. Diligence is the work we do to plan out missionary activities. It's the work we do to, 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 to come up with ideas. And then discernment is the work we do when we sit back and we say, Holy Spirit, do what you want to do. Have your way with these plans. Have your way with this, this call that I feel you putting on my heart. Have your way. Do whatever you want with my life. So discernment and diligence are both part of what is called for in any sort of successful missionary endeavor. Rarely does God ever give us any direction by bold writing in the sky or neon lights. Usually it's the subtle leadings of His Spirit to go or to stay or to act or to wait or to give or to save. And so we do make plans, but we trust in God's Spirit. The way we access the subtle leadings of God's Holy Spirit is through the spiritual disciplines. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Don't be anxious, don't worry, don't fret about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, 
Let your requests be made known to God. That's the spiritual discipline of prayer. And then it says in verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I use that verse over and over and over and over again, and I give that verse out as advice over and over and over again because I really believe that the Holy Spirit does put a peace on our heart when he, to help us make good decisions. But it requires serious prayer. I mean, Paul says prayer here several different ways with uh, prayer and supplication and thanksgiving and request. He's saying, get on your knees. Talk to God. Don't be anxious about it. Don't be anxious about whether or not we should adopt this child. Don't be anxious about whether or not we should do this ministry. Don't be anxious about whether or not we should go to Tanzania. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about these things. Instead, wait on the Lord. Pray. Get in the Word. Get disciplined spiritually. And let His peace take over. If He doesn't give you a peace, then He may not be leading you into that area. That does not mean that it's going to be easy. Just because God gives you peace doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Okay, I just, just oh, I was going to call the hogs at the very beginning, and I didn't. I just said, go hogs. But I'm not from here. I did not, I did not want to be in Georgia. I never wanted to be in Georgia. Heather and I had visited Georgia one time before, and we left and said, we're never going back to Atlanta. All right? But well, that's another lesson. There's no scripture that says this, but never say never to the Lord. All right? But the, but the, but the point is that we didn't want... We, when God began to call us here, it didn't make sense to us. All of our family was in Georgia, and we didn't, I mean, in Arkansas. We didn't want to come here. And it was very, very difficult because we knew, I knew from God's Spirit leading my heart that where I was going to do ministry was going to be a very difficult and painful task. But I had just such a peace about it, and we had such a joy about it, we couldn't help but go. But we knew it was going to be a challenge. Same thing with starting any sort of ministry. You know, I've talked to a couple of you guys that, back there that go out and do street ministry. And you shared how difficult it was to make that decision. But God's Holy Spirit gives you the, the peace and the strength and the power to go carry out his missionaries' endeavors. So we act with wisdom. Okay, but even the wisdom we need to make good plans has to come from God. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. How do we ask God? Through prayer. Spiritual disciplines again. Who gives generously to all without reproach and let it be given to him. Do you see how important the spiritual disciplines are in missionary work? Until Harbin's is a strong praying church, we will not be a strong missionary church. It's that simple. And I can't fabricate it. We can't just, you know, I can say, hey, I'm going to show up at 8.50 and then blow a whistle. Everybody get in here. Let's pray before the service. And make it something you have to do. And have this awkward circle of people going, looking at the watch. That doesn't produce missionaries. What produces missionaries is heartfelt seeking of the Lord. Saying, God, do something here today. Do something with me. Do something with my family. Getting on your knees and saying, God, I'm going to go without food today because I have to know something. What do you want me to do about this possibility you're putting in my life and I can't make the decision on my own. I'm not wise enough. Give me the wisdom. Give me the peace. I have to have it. That's a church that's hungry for the direction of the Lord. A church that's hungry for the direction of the Lord prays. A church that's comfortable with the cushions in the church doesn't. We have to be a church of spiritual discipline. 
Without it, we will not be a missionary church. They were spirit-led. Sometimes the spirit closes doors. Acts chapter 16, we'll get there in a few weeks. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They were forbidden to go into Asia. And then in verse 7, And when we came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. The Holy Spirit opens doors, and sometimes He shuts them in our face. And we'd be foolish to try to pry them open. When God shuts a door, sit back, wait. When we get to Acts chapter 16, you'll see that God gave them a clear revelation of where He wanted them to go. So any true missionary endeavor is Spirit-led. Spirit-led missionary endeavors are endeavors that are, that are sensitive to the Spirit, therefore spiritual disciplines are involved. But as I said here in this point, we're also going to be word-centered. It says in verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, or Salamis, they proclaimed what? The word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. This is John Mark in this passage. He, he becomes important in the, in the next um, study we'll look at next week. Uh, John Mark is with them. This is the man who wrote under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Gospel of Mark. So he's with um, Saul and Barnabas at this point. Now we see a pattern here, a missionary pattern. Again, a strategy, a well-thought-out strategy, is that they go into the synagogues. This will be repeated throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Is the first place the missionaries go is into the synagogue of the Jews. Why? Because they're proclaiming a Jewish Messiah. And they're proclaiming the Jewish Messiah from the Jewish Scriptures. But they're proclaiming that this Jewish Messiah from the Jewish scriptures is God's Messiah for all people. So they go first into the synagogues. It's a good strategy. It's a place where God's word wouldn't be offensive. You can proclaim it in here. And so they, had, they were thinking through things. and They had a good plan and a good strategy as they go out. But the word of God is what they proclaim. The word of God is what they desire to spread. It's what's driving their missions. Not humanitarian aid. Not a call for social justice. These things are good and, and should be, be carried out by all believers all over the world. Humanitarian aid, social justice. But our main efforts and our main passion and what drives us more than anything else should be to get the Word of God to people who need to hear the Word of God. People need to hear the Word. Acts is all about the Word of God increasing and spreading. Let me read a few passages for you. Acts 4.31 and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak what? The Word of God with boldness. Acts 6-7. And the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 8-4. I mean 8-14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received what? The Word of God. They sent to them Peter and John. Acts 11-1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received what? The Word of God. In Acts 12, 24, the Word of God, it says, increased and multiplied. That's that beautiful verse near the end of chapter 12, the sermon that Demer preached, where you've got Satan opposing it. Opposing it through powerful means, a guy by the name of Herod. But Herod can't stand in the way of God. Matter of fact, God just gets rid of Herod in that passage. And the Word of God continues to go. It continues to increase and it continues to spread. 
Acts 1.8 is carried out through the spreading of God's word. The word of God that goes out does not come back empty. It does not come back void. Scripture describes the missionary as a, like a farmer spreading the word like seed. All the while trusting God to enable it to take root, to grow, and to produce a harvest. <coughs> the spread of God's word therefore must drive our missionary efforts. It must be the center of all that we do. The word is our power in witnessing. It is what makes the Christian mission unique from any another endeavor out there. If we just focus on humanitarian aid, we're just the Red Cross with a different name. What makes the Christian missionary endeavor different from anything else in the world is that it's about the spreading of the word of God. Now the next thing I want us to see is that missionary endeavors that are spirit-led will obviously be word-centered, but such endeavors will also inevitably experience satanic opposition. Verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So they run into a guy by the name of Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar-Jesus, his name means son, Bar is son of, son of Jesus. But what's Jesus' name mean? It means Savior or salvation. So this guy's name is son of the Savior or son of salvation. That's who Bar-Jesus is. But he's no uh, son of salvation. He is actually opposing the salvation of the Lord. Now, he opposes them. Why is he opposing them? Well, Perhaps he's opposing him because he, he wants to keep his position. It was very common for magistrates, uh, governors, proconsuls in the Roman world to have a magician in their court. They would have someone in their court that was a quote-unquote wise man. And so perhaps when he hears the gospel message being preached, he feels like his position is in danger. But I think primarily the reason he opposes the spreading of the word of God is that he's an agent of Satan. He perhaps is demon-possessed. We don't know for sure. But he is certainly a, a, an agent of Satan in that he's opposing the spreading of the word of God. Satan hates the spread of God's word. But this Roman deputy governor of this island, he heard about Barnabas and Saul, and he sought to hear the word of God. If you guys get, like, Voice of the Martyrs, their newsletter, or Open Doors, or go into their websites, um, you'll know what they're constantly asking for. What are they constantly asking for? They're asking for Bibles or money to, to print more Bibles. They want to get Bibles into the hands of people. They want to get the Word of God spread into these dangerous lands. And what is it in those dangerous lands, in those countries, that Christians can get in the most trouble for? You know what Christians get in the most trouble for in those countries and in those lands? is possessing or distributing the Word of God. The Christian's mission is to get the word out there. Satan's primary task that he's trying to do is stop it. Stop the spread of the word of God. And like Deemer said in his prayer this morning, Satan will try to stop you from hearing the word of God this morning, however he can. Have you thinking about your fantasy football team? You forgot to draft somebody. You forgot to switch somebody over. And you hope you can get there before the games start. Or having you thinking about your food that you want to eat at lunch. Or having you think about maybe something more serious. Some marital strife that's in your home right now, or whatever. 
whatever baggage, whatever pain you might be bringing with you, this is a time to let God lift that off your shoulders so he can speak the word of God into your heart. Stopping the word of God is more important to Satan than anything else. He hates humanity. He loves human suffering. He'll stand in the way of our attempts to alleviate human suffering. But more than physical suffering, Satan loves human lostness. He loves human sinfulness. He loves human rebellion against God. And so while he might put obstacles in the path of our attempts to relieve human suffering, he pulls out all the stops to battle any attempt to spread the word of God. For he knows that the word of God has within it the power to set people free from his bondage, to be made spiritually alive. And nothing infuriates Satan more than having one of his own children being loosed from their bonds and becoming a child of God. That makes him mad. And the way that that happens is when the word of God, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, reaches the ears of a receptive heart. And Satan hates that. We read in, in Luke chapter 8, and, or in the parable of the, of the sower. Remember the parable of the sower? He's, he's spreading the seed, which is what? The word of God. And, and it's landing in, in different places. And it says the, the first place it lands is along the path. And Jesus is explaining it to his disciples. He says those along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. That's what Satan's trying to do. Snatch it away before it can take root. Before it can have any effect. This clearly demonic opposition (coughs) to the spread of God's word is is another pattern. There's lots of patterns in the book of Acts. There's lots of patterns in the book of Acts. Uh, In Acts chapter 8, when the gospel goes to Samaria, remember they run into another magician, a guy by the name of of Simon. And there was satanic opposition there. In Acts chapter 16, when the gospel crosses over into Europe for the first time, as it continues to go to the ends of the earth, they run into a demon-possessed girl who's, who's opposing them. And so there's, there's demonic opposition when the gospel begins to spread into new lands, when it begins, begins to reach ears that need to hear the message. Now, who is this Bar-Jesus? He's a magician. The title it simply means, it's magos, which means wise man. It's the exact same title used for the wise men in the Christmas story that we're all so familiar with. Okay, the wise men who come and bring gifts to Jesus? It's the same word. Magos. So, so what are, were, they, were they false prophets too? No, the Bible doesn't call them false prophets. The Bible calls this guy a false prophet. Luke follows up that word magos with the word, with, with, with telling us that they were false prophets. So, so what is this? Well, in those days there were these court wise men who studied things. And sometimes their studies would cross over from the scientific studies of the world and of the stars into occult practices. So like the wise men that came and visited Jesus were, were, were astronomers and, they, and they, would, they would study the stars and they would, they would predict things through the stars just as far as patterns and, and where things were going to happen. But that is there's such a blurry line there from that becoming astrology where you begin to, to, try, to try to do other types of things through the stars and you begin to worship the stars and and then the study of nature and the study of, of, of creation can, can easily become a worship of creation. So these, there was a very blurry line here. These wise men, some of them were very much involved in occult practices and some of them were not. But this man apparently was involved in some sort of cultic practice because he's called here a false prophet. 
His main goal is to turn, according to the scripture, turn the proconsul away from the faith. Sergius Paulus is the battleground. Satan's goal is to turn him away from Christ. And God's plan is to bring him into Christ. That's the battleground. But we know who wins the battle. But this is Satan's goal in all false religions. To turn people away from the faith. All false religions, therefore, all false religions, therefore, are satanic at their core and are the doctrine of demons. The Bible, multiple places, calls false doctrine, false religion, the teaching of demons. Now, that is not a very popular thing to say in our world today. It may seem harsh to you this morning. But the gospel message of Jesus Christ is the only message that points people to the way of salvation. All other religions are man trying to find a way or to work a way or to discover something divine or to be divine. The Christian gospel is the only religion in the world that teaches that there is no work that you can do to get to heaven. And that only through Christ and his finished work on the cross and his work in your heart can you be saved. Therefore, it's not about what we can do to get to God, which every other... Satan gets you thinking that you've got to work your way to heaven. He has just spoken into your life a doctrine of demons, and every other religion teaches the same thing in some sort of way, in some sort of package. And Christianity is the only religion that teaches us that God came to rescue sinners who deserved hell. Satan's goal is to keep the world in bondage, thinking that they can somehow gain access to God, make themselves right with God, or be God, or whatever else. And this is the message of all religions outside of Christianity. Therefore, Satan has the world (coughs) under (coughs) a demonic delusion that is propagated by a vast array of false teachings, false religions, propagated by false teachers. Sergius Paulus is described here as an intelligent man. He's a prudent man. He's a wise man. And he wants to hear the gospel. Friends, God will never hold someone at arm's length who wants to hear the gospel. There's there's no such thing as a person who's been desiring to hear the gospel. I really want to hear the gospel. There's no one here to tell me it. Someone who responds to the light that they've been given, God will bring the gospel to them. And this man, Sergius Paulus, he wants to hear the gospel message. He sends for Saul and Barnabas because he wants to hear what they have to say. And Satan opposes it. All missionary endeavors are therefore spirit-led, word-centered, and will receive satanic opposition. But you know what? All missionary endeavors that are spirit-led and are word-centered will be unstoppable. Isaiah 55, 11, I alluded to this verse earlier. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose it, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? So Paul, knowing that he serves an unstoppable God with an unstoppable message, shows tremendous boldness. If we are going to be on a spirit-led missionary endeavor, we should have tremendous boldness. I feel a strong conviction and a certain amount of guilt all the time because I feel like I lack spiritual boldness. But Paul here responds with tremendous boldness. Verse 9, 
But Paul, who was also called, I mean Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, this power of the Spirit has to be present for us to have boldness, looked intently at him, means he looked at him eye to eye. He gets all up in his face. That's Holy Spirit boldness, all right? The boldness of the Spirit (coughs) is another theme repeated (coughs) all throughout the book of Acts. All throughout the book of Acts. And I'm not going to read a bunch of passages to you, but I'll just give them Acts 4.13 talks about boldness. Acts 4.29, boldness. Acts 4.31 talks about boldness. Acts 1.8 is about boldness. And so there's a theme in, in Acts about God giving boldness to his people. <coughs> boldness is the presence of his spirit that enables us to face opposition without fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, one of my favorite verses. I quoted a lot to myself. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but what? But of power, of love, and of self-control. That's the spirit that God's put into our heart. Not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. That verse is actually connected to Timothy's boldness to be able to preach the gospel and to not be ashamed of the gospel. So I'm convinced that part of the reason I like boldness and perhaps you like boldness, is that we don't embrace the promise of God that his work can't be thwarted. Even if we are killed, his work can't be thwarted. And you get a martyr's crown. There's thousands of examples, missionary examples, and the one I share most often is because I met the person. You remember the story of Jim Elliott and the other four missionaries in Ecuador who were slaughtered by the Alka Indians when they tried to take what? The word of God to them. When I was in seventh grade, I got to meet one of the Indians who killed those missionaries. He is a believer and a leader in his tribe for the gospel's sake. Satanic opposition may seem like it's working when a spear brings down the missionary, but nothing can stop the message of the gospel that continues to go. And so there stood Elizabeth Elliot with a man here who killed her husband because the gospel can't be stopped. That's the beauty of what's happening here in this passage. In boldness, Paul invokes some Old Testament language here. He goes Old Testament on the guy, all right? He, he, he says, you son of the devil. That's a nice little play on words because the guy's name is what? Son of salvation. He said, you're, not, you're no son of salvation, you are a son of the devil. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? The word deceit here is a very interesting word. It's the word in the Greek used for bait. All false religions are bait. A good fisherman, which I'm not one, makes every attempt to make the bait very enticing while hiding the hook. That's what Satan is an expert at. Making the bait enticing while hiding the hook. And he says, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. In Acts chapter 11, we read about the hand of the Lord being upon the church in Antioch. But that phrase in chapter 11 is referring to God's merciful hand on the church. And here we're reading about God's judgment hand on a false prophet. And you'll be blind and unable to see for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Darkness falls upon him, 
almost as a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. He is spiritually blind, and now he's physically blind. Certainly this reminded Saul, now Paul, of his own experience when he opposed the Lord, and he was struck blind. Remember reading about that? Perhaps that's what, what's reminding Paul of here, and maybe that's a glimmer of hope in this passage as well, because what does he tell this Bar-Jesus dude? He says, you'll be blind for a time. Maybe there's hope here, just like Saul, Paul, that God will intervene in this man's life and he'll turn to the one true God and stop practicing his evil ways. <coughs> the Spirit wrought boldness and the Spirit wrought power and he is to be feared. Don't forget what preceded this bold, powerful first missionary experience. What was it? Prayer and fasting. I'm going to keep coming back to it, guys. Prayer and fasting. If you've got opposition in your life, if this church is facing opposition, if you're facing opposition and something you're trying to do for the Lord, it isn't going to be overcome through you just working harder. You've got to be praying and fasting. If your life is not bathed and saturated with prayer and the spiritual disciplines such as fasting, there will be no power to overcome the terrible and sometimes frightening things that come in our way, obstacles. Then the proconsul believed. The end result of Saul and Barnabas's ministry is, it's that it, is that it's fruitful and it's unstoppable. Then the proconsul believed. Now I want you to pay close attention to this last verse, and we're almost done. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He believed, he put his faith in Christ. Now, listen to this. It says, when he saw what occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. We may be tempted to look at this passage and think that the miracle was what got him to belief. You look at this passage, you say, oh yeah, he believed when he saw what happened to this guy. But when you look at the way this sentence is constructed, you've got to look at two words, the word when and the word for. Okay? It says, when he saw what occurred, uh, he, he believed when he saw what occurred. That's just giving us the moment that he believed. It's saying, hey, this is the moment he believed. I'm not saying that seeing some guy in your uh, court struck blind and wandering around bumping into things isn't going to have an impact on you. I think it probably did. But what, we, what, what Luke is referring to here is the moment that the guy was saved, not the reason he was saved. When he saw this guy go blind, he believed. Now there's another word in that sentence, the word for. The word for points us to the purpose of his belief, why he believed, how he believed, and what does it say? For he was astonished, not that a guy went blind, not that Paul had such powerful words. He was astonished at what? The teaching of the Lord. The doctrine of the Lord, it may say in your translation. In other words, we're full circle back to the Word of God. Miracles don't save anybody. Miracles may point to the salvation message, but miracles don't save people. The Word of God is what has the power unto salvation, according to Romans 1.16. The gospel message of the Word of God. That's why this man believed, because he heard 
the Word of God. And we see the pattern again. Wonder and Word. Wonder and Word. Wonder and Word. The wonders and acts are simply to point people to the Word. So if we have to choose between being a wonder church that does lots of miracles or a church that's focused on the Word, the choice is clear. We're going to be a Word-centered church. Word-centered church. What a powerful beginning to world missions. A spirit-led, word-driven, missionary mission that boldly and powerfully faced down strong opposition of the enemy and won and produced fruit. Spirit-led, word-driven, and unstoppable. I thank God that he is doing a work here at Harbin's. But you know what? I, I dream of so much more. I dream of a church that's so in love with God that we can't help but just go share his word with as many people as we can in our homes. We, our homes become places of, of hospitality. We, we give of our resources. You've got those offering envelopes in, in your pews there. You know, they don't always have to just go to our budget. There's places you can mark on there. Hey, I want this to go to missions work. Whatever it might be. But there were a church that says, you know what? I've got to do something to get the word of God out there. Maybe it's just, I'm just holding the rope. Maybe God's calling me to be on the end of the rope going down into the well. But whatever it is, I'm going to do something. But you know what? Before we can do that, we've got a lot of work to do with the spiritual disciplines at Harvins. We really do. We've got to be a church that prays more. And I can't go into your homes and make you pray more. So it starts individually. But corporately as well, we have got to be a church that prays more. Because when we have spiritual discipline, then we'll be sensitive to God's Spirit leading us, which is where our power comes from. And then we can go take that word boldly to whoever, without fear. Because ultimately, God's message is unstoppable. He'll use Harbin's if we'll be sensitive to his lead. But his message is unstoppable. He doesn't need this church. He doesn't need this church at all. He'll get his message into Harbin's however he sees fit. But I pray, I pray that we'll be like Antioch, a church that he uses to propel the word into this community and beyond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask for your forgiveness. On behalf of myself and on behalf of this church body, whom you've placed me as an overseer, as a shepherd, but I ask for forgiveness. Because, God, we don't seek your face as much as we seek other things. Full bellies are more important to us than being filled with the Spirit. I confess it to you, Lord, and I'm not just confessing it for everyone here, I'm confessing it for me. And, God, I want to be a church that's like Antioch. Lord, <coughs> back when you planted this church, I hoped that we would be a church that would plant new churches. And God, I want to see that happen. But God, I know you have so much work to do in our hearts first. So God, help us to be a people of prayer. Help us to be a people of sacrifice. Help us to get our own egos and our own understanding and our own ideas out of the way. And to be submissive to your spirit and whatever you want us to do. God, I think you're calling some in here 
to get on the end of a rope that wants to take them into a very dark place, a very scary place. But God, you're calling them there. God, I pray they would respond to your call. And God, you're calling some in here to hold that rope tighter with their finances, with sacrificial giving, with, with, with sacrificial prayer. You're calling them to hold that rope tighter. Lord, I pray that you'd move in their heart to do that. For God, as we come to you now and we sing and we bring up prayer requests and we put our offerings in, God, forgive us if it's a silly little rote routine that we've gotten used to doing at Harbin's. And let our giving and let our praying be real. Spirit-led. So God, we ask that you would just take this time of response. It's a time for all of us to respond. We ask, Lord, that you do a work in Harbin's but more importantly, that you just spread your word, shoot it out, propel it out to all the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would as we sing and we respond in song. Let's just respond to the Lord. I will offer up my life in spirit and truth, pouring out the oil of love as my worship to you. In surrender, I must give my every part. Lord, receive the sacrifice of a broken heart. Jesus, what can I give? What can I bring to so faithful a friend, to so loving a king? Savior, what can be said? What can be sung as a praise of your name for the things you have done? Oh, my words could not tell, not even in part of the debt of love that is owed by this thankful heart. He deserves our every breath. You deserve my every breath. For you paid the great cost, giving up your life to death, even death on a cross. And you took all my shame away, there defeated my sin. Open up the gates of heaven and have beckoned me in. Jesus, what can I give? What can I bring? To so faithful a friend, to so loving a king, to see what can be said, what can be sung, as a praise of your name, for the things you have done, oh my words could not tell, not even in part. The debt of love that is owed by this thankful heart. Father, we're thankful that you don't leave us alone. 
thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit. God, forgive us for our prayerlessness. Forgive me for my prayerlessness. Forgive me for thinking, Lord, that, that I have to come to you a certain way, Lord, that I have to give you the perfect prayer, Lord. What you desire is my heart. What you desire is humble hearts coming before you, God, humbling ourselves and praying. So, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to pray? Would you teach us about prayer, Lord, as the disciples asked you, Jesus, teach them to pray? We ask you the same thing. You would teach us to pray. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, our next uh, fellowship meal is next week, and um, I'm very excited about this because the theme is going to be Italian delight. Uh, so, um, you know, pasta, tomato sauce, garlic bread. I'm putting it in my order, so just to keep that in mind. But uh, you may not want to have a big breakfast next Sunday morning. Um, that's, uh, that's next week. Uh, coming up, uh, we've got the Explore the Bible Study class with me downstairs. That's going to be in about uh, 10 minutes, uh, so please join me for that. And uh, membership class in about 15 minutes up here. Yeah, you want to say something about that? Minutes. Well, I was just going to say, teachers, Deemer, Rewind teachers and myself, feel the freedom to go to 12.15 if you need to, to get your lesson done. Don't feel like you've got to cut it off at a certain time. So just, I want you all to feel the freedom to do that since our service went a little long today. Okay. And, uh, and then uh, Rewind starts here in five minutes. So God bless you. You're dismissed.